Hello friends, it is your host, I can't the idea really. This week we're doing a little bit of a step back, a little moonwalk in time. As part of a conversation with Anthony Basalabia that I had uh, earlier this year, we discussed a little bit about Biafra. At the time, it was the 50th anniversary of the end of that war. Um, the It was a, the uh, major Nigerian civil war. And he had phenomenal insights on the war itself, um, events rolling out of the war, and, and what our, our future looks like moving forward. Now, this conversation was extremely casual. Um, it was us just kind of chatting about it, riffing about it. Um, more of me listening than talking, to be honest with you, because uh, I love to learn history and I really get so engrossed in these things. But I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, and I think you guys will too. Thank you so much for listening, and um, follow us on Instagram at PodSaveAfrica. We're on Patreon at patreon.com slash PodSaveAfrica. We're on Twitter as PodSaveAfrica, but the O is a zero, not an O. Don't ask why, but there's a reason why. And check out our website at SaveAfricaPod.com. Thank you so very much for listening in, and we look forward to having you guys enjoy this episode. Cheers. To Pod Save Africa. Welcome 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 to Pod Save Africa. Welcome. Hello. Welcome back to Pod Save Africa. It's your host, Akandi Adirili, and I'm here again with Basil. And we're discussing the Biafran War. Uh, if you're not familiar, uh, the Biafran War, uh, or technically Nigerian Civil War, happened from uh, the 15th of January. Sorry, ended, started from the, the 6th of July, 1967, and ended on the 15th of January, 1970. <laughs> Making making this past week the 50th anniversary of the war. Um, Rafael and I are going to discuss the war, some of its details, give our listeners context as to what happened, and then we're going to discuss, you know, basically uh, what the future looks like and how national reconciliation is going to, if ever, happen in Nigeria. Um, so, Basel, how about you introduce yourself uh, to my listeners? Okay, uh, I am Bastille Anthony Ambia, and um, I'm a research assistant at a policy think tank based in Abuja, the Center for the Study of the Economies of Africa, and most importantly, I'm a very passionate Nigerian, and I'll be speaking, or I'll be talking on uh, the Nigeria, the Afro Civil War, and literally just everything about it. And, and considering how sensitive that topic is, I will try to, I'll do my best to stick to observable, acceptable uh, facts with the um, scholarly circles on the war itself. Again, uh, I will ensure that I don't say or, or, or use uh, uh, talking points that are basically, you know, uh, hearsay 
uh, try and avoid that so that we can really get the substance of the of the discourse. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, uh, Basil. I appreciate you uh, sharing the time to discuss this. Of course, like you noted, it's an extremely sensitive uh, topic. If people aren't familiar, this was a war that happened um, in the late 1960s uh, through 1970 that's, that's resulted in somewhere between one to three million casualties. Um, just for context, the American Civil War uh, resulted in roughly in under a million casualties. Um, so this was a massive war um, that involved uh, uh, multi a multitude of casualties, um, a lot of whom were were on the Biafran side of the war. So yeah, it was uh, it was it was actually the first uh, major war televised in human history. Human history. So you can. Yeah, in human history, imagine following a war with uh, 9 p.m. daily news updates. Uh, in, yeah, I think in black and white TV at that time. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we had college TV till the 70s in the UK. Yeah. So, so yeah, it was the first televised war in history, major war in history, and uh, that literally just changed the whole the whole, you know, the whole scope of it, because the world now started to know what or how callous the human mind can be mm -hmm. uh, at that point. Absolutely. So how about we go into it? Um, in the, in 1966 was a busy year for Nigeria. A lot happened. A, a lot, lot happened. A lot, a lot happened. Yes. Yeah. So how about you take our listeners through the, the, the things that happened in 1966 and um, then into then into the war in '67. Um, first and foremost, uh, a group of um, army officers, rank and file, decided to go against the um, establishment, and it was a very well planned operation led by uh, Kaduna Zeogu. Uh, that's his name. Uh, he's an Igbo man. He was an Igbo. <laughs> He was yep. an Igbo officer, uh -huh. and the majority of the people that perpetrated that um, um, coup were Igbo officers. There were, of course, other officers from other ethnic groups, but they were predominantly from the southern part of Nigeria, and they uh, perpetrated that coup. And it was a very bloody coup. Um, literally, almost every single member of the, the Federal Executive Council were assassinated at that uh, point. And you know Nigeria, even before uh, independence, we always had ethnocentric colorations to actions. Mm -hmm. um, from a very contextual perspective, the uh, rank and file of the Nigerian army at that time undertook that uh, uh, coup because they believed there was a lot of massive corruption happening in government. From that, uh, contextual perspective. It was, they didn't see it from an ethnocentric perspective, you know, or where we're going to wipe the government who are majorly from the northern part of the country. Uh, this, of course, was taken out of context by the onlookers as to uh, being uh, the southern or the, the folks from the eastern region wanting to take over power and then take over Nigeria. And of course, we all know what happened after that. Uh, well, for those who do not know what happened after that, there were two things. First and, uh, and foremost, 
um, we had the Araba crisis. Uh, it was the who started the Igbo po pogrom, uh, and the pogrom is basically uh, the I think the first or second stage of a genocide when you target have targeted killings on a particular group of people uh, and for instance. So this pogrom killed uh, thirty thousand Igbos throughout the north and saw almost a million, if not a million Igbos and other southern groups uh, to flee from the northern part of Nigeria back home. Uh, that, that was obviously part of the building block to the war. Uh, secondly, um, or even before the, the onset of the Igbo program, we had a Guinea-Ronsi, yet another um, uh, Igbo army officer take over uh, the, uh, the government as head of state, as a military head of state. So he became the first military head of state in Nigeria's history. And his initial plan was to ensure stability and go after the corrupt elements of the then uh, Namdi Ezekwe and Abubakar Tafar Balewa government. Uh, well, Namdi Ezekwe was basically just a ceremonial head. The main head of state or the main guy in charge was uh, so Abubakar Tafar Baliwa, mm -hmm. the then Prime Minister of Nigeria, and all the premiers, of, of course. Uh, there was one particular man who had almost a godlike sort of reverence, in, especially in northern Nigeria. His name, Amadou Bello, he was the premier of the northern region. He was also killed okay. in the, uh, the, uh, the coup attempt or the coup d'etat that was successful. And that, I think, was the major trigger points because he had immense followership. Um, he was literally seen as the, the king of the north. Uh, for those who watch a lot of uh, Game of Thrones, you would get that reference. So he was known as the king, uh, uh, king in the north. Um, he was he had incredible political clout. He undertook what we call the Northernization uh, uh, policy, which basically replaced. Uh, public offices in northern Nigerian offices with northerners themselves. He felt that, that um, as a section, and Nigeria was a very federalist uh, entity at that point in time. So you could imagine it was more of the regions and the sub-regions having much more power than the center itself. Unlike now where we're, it's literally power is heavily decentralized. Then it was, uh, sorry, power is heavily it's centralized. centralized. It's heavily yeah. centralized now. Then it was so decentralized that the people who actually moved the entity called Nigeria were from the, the regions and the sub-regions. And for the northern region, they were, they were that powerful. They, they, were, they, they had immense political clout. They could move, they could shake the entire Nigerian Union. And that was exactly what happened when Amadi Bello and the Prime Minister Bukatifal Balewa were assassinated. They were angered. The northern section of the Nigerian army were livid and we all know what, uh, what transpired just after that. We have the Igbo program that killed 30,000 people and sent uh, a million Nigerians of southern uh, extraction out of northern Nigeria. We had Akui Ronsi as well, who knew that if he didn't take uh, charge, he was going to have serious problems. Mm -hmm. And regardless, just as he was about to you know, start making changes to social formation and national formation, uh, we had yet another coup, and um, um, Yakubu Gowan took over as the head of state. Now, Yakubu Gowan's uh, 
takeover as the military head of state uh, was largely a big part of why the war actually took place. Place, Don't get me wrong. If we, if, if, if Nigeria at that time had taken steps to de-escalate, we wouldn't have had the war. We probably would have had a crisis, a national crisis, and it would have ended that. But we, we did not de-escalate. What, what happened was that um, another army officer of Northern Extraction took over as the head of state. And that angered the most senior army officer then, his name, um, um, General or Major General, uh, um, it's always Ojuku. Ojuku, yes. Yeah, Ojuku, that, I don't know what was o- happening. Ojuku technically have been the yeah. takeover. Yeah, he should have been if you follow rank and file, who was the most and senior if, officer if, then. If I remember correctly, that's a coup that even that I go on to Kovain was led by Murtala Mohammed. Yes, it was led by Murtala Mohammed. He led the coup. Um, it was, of course, it was largely led by the northern section. Uh-huh. And to appease the north, in sort of a way, instead of giving it to a house of Muslim, they decided to give it to a northern Christian. And this was because, literally, at that time, uh, the army was uh, dominated by northern Christians. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of history behind this, actually, really? and I've been doing a lot. I've been doing a lot of uh, reading about this. Uh, I just completed reading uh, this book called uh, Empire, um, Emirates, and uh, and the Evangelicals. It, it, it tells t- tells the story of of the advent of Christianity in northern Nigeria. And the core of that was in Usasa. Usasa is a part of Zaria, and we all know how important Zaria is to Nigeria, especially yeah. Nigeria's military history. So the first people, the first cadets to have access to military education were mostly Northern Christians because that Usasa area was dominated by Northern Christians who were houses and also from the other ethnic minorities in the North who became Christians because of um, um, A.B. Miller, A.B. Miller, and a few other uh, colonialists who were staunch Christians and wanted to uh, convert a part of the North. Uh, it's a long history. I don't want to go further than that. But basically, in the 60s, early 60s, most of the senior officers that were not Southerners uh, in the rank and file of the army were actually Northern Christians. And Yakubo Gowan was picked to lead them because they didn't want it to have another ethnocentric coloration as well. They were, they were very smart, uh, yeah. the members of the uh, northern section of the army, and they decided, okay, instead of giving it to a house of Muslim, we'll give it to Yakubu Gawan. And frankly, they didn't even have to do that because the, as I said earlier on, the most senior officer then was, uh, uh, was Ojuku, and then the next person just after him was Yakubu Gawan. So even if they did not uh, uh, obviously, they would not want to give it to, at that point, they didn't want to give it to Ojuku after what had happened. So they decided to give it to Yakubu Gawan. But there's a lot of history to unpack even behind that decision making. But this was actually what caused uh, uh, that trigger, the next trigger point just after uh, the coup, the first coup, of course. So this trigger point of, of, of having uh, Ojuku lose out on being head of state, which was his ultimate dream. This was a guy whose dad, at one point in time, was one of the richest, if not the richest black man in the world, uh, uh, Sir Louis 
Chuku Emeka Ojuku, that was Ojuku's dad. Wow. He was so wealthy. He was so wealthy to the point that when the queen came uh, for, for the first time to Nigeria, I think in 1957 or 1958, mm-hmm. um, they had to get his Rolls Royce. Rolls Royce. Oh, yeah. yeah. My father told me that story once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Specifically for that, because he was he literally had immense wealth and he was into transportation uh, business. And you all know how transportation business can be, can be very, very um, uh, fruitful per se. So, yeah. So, Sir Louis Chukwemeka Ojuku took his son to some of the best uh, schools around the world. He went to Epsom College. Yep. If you're listening from the UK, you will know about that. It's where the elites of the elites go to school even till date. Um, he went to some of the finest military schools. I think it was Sandhurst mm-hmm. in, uh, in the UK as well. And um, he was so smart. He was incredibly smart. And uh, obviously with that comes arrogance. Uh, Ojuku was known to be incredibly arrogant. He was a snob. Uh, that's another story for another day. Most of the rank and file did not really like him. So they were happy. Not to give him, uh, uh, yeah, not, not for him not to become the head of state. So it was, funny because his father I, died just before the war in 1956. Yes, yes, that's that's another another big. There's another big factor to that to to how the aftermath of his death that led to some decisions that he made. Uh, hmm. Regardless of regardless of that, he was the um, military governor of the eastern region okay. at that time before. It, uh, it was further broken down into states. Uh, I think just after the war, Yakubu and decided, you know what, these, these regions are incredibly powerful. Let's break them down into more federating units, into states, uh, so that they don't have the clouds to be able to force another war. Because basically, it was the eastern region that decided to call themselves Biafra and yeah. secede. Uh, and it was under the leadership of um, um, General um, Odimegu Ojuku. Now, that stuttering part has left me so I can now remember these things. So, yeah. Um, but before he even decided that, there was already a movement, an intellectual movement, and we all know how uh, incred- incredibly smart Nigerians from the southern part, the west and the east are. So at that point, there was, there was, there was kind of like an intellectual movement, you know, a rising and uprising of people saying, do we really have to live under a British contraption? Uh, we really aren't one people. Let's go our way. You know, this conversation started happening from the media. It also happened from the academia as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, they had just, I mean, United, uh, the University of Nigeria and Suka had just gotten established in 1962, I think, or 64. Uh, so you had an academic environment or an academic community that was asking these questions. Are we really one country? Are we united? Uh, can we live together as one? Right. And that's spot on. And, um, it's a question. Oj- yeah, Ojuku, of course, uh, uh, played his part in, 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 in listening and trying to answer their questions. And uh, that's what raised uh, the, the issue. Uh, when um, Yakubu Gawan took over, um, Ojuku was livid and decided that he would start plans, start making plans to be able to, to, to succeed. And the pogrom, of course, that had happened uh, angered him and uh, he decided that, you know what, let's take this to the next step. Let's declare um, a state of the peoples of Biafra. And the state was declared and they had made moves. Uh, uh, they had currency, they had currency, they had 
societies established, they had basic offices established, they had the secret police established, they had their own army established within that period. Within that, within that period, within that, they, they had not even made the official uh, full declaration. They just declared that, look, we are now under this uh, umbrella body. Uh, we're going to make this move now. So they, they made sure that they got all the things in charge. And while doing that, of course, uh, Yakubu Gawan decided to declare police action. Uh, for those who are not really conversant with public, uh, political science uh, terms, when a, a, a head of state declares police action, basically is asking for uh, state authorities to hand over power to uh, the institution of police. Uh, in the sense of time, it's not like it's it's like it's like declaring state of emergency, basically. Like martial. Yeah. Yes, yes, basically that's it. But in Nigerian context, we call it police action, uh, and uh, the Nigerian police took over, and it it just started with more animosities. We couldn't de-escalate. Uh, we had some committees that, that were set up to you know sort out the, 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 the animosities in between, but it wasn't successful until the Ghanaians decided to play the regional brother, brother part. Yep. And the Ghanaians called Ojuku and, uh, and uh, go, on. Uh, go on over to Aburi, uh -huh. um, Aburi in Ghana. That's where the Aburi Accord gets its name from. Yep. And uh, negotiations went on for days. There was another meeting again called after that, uh, because the first meeting was unsuccessful. There was another meeting called after that. And literally in these meetings, um, Ojuku and uh, Yakubu Gawan were, I would say, very gentlemanly. They ate from literally the same plates at some point. There, there are pictures too of that. So uh, if you're listening, I'm not telling you a sweet tale. There's, there's factual evidence. Of these, they ate literally. There's a photo of Ojuku and Yakubu Gawan eating rice at stew. Uh, and the other episode I was talking about the political clout of rice. So there's, there's them, you know, dipping in their, their, their forks. I think they were using the fork uh, and dipping in and, uh, and, and really having a good time together. And only for them to go into war the next uh, three, three months. Three months later. Uh, yeah. Three months later, of course, and um, um, basically the Aburi Accord was unsuccessful. Yeah, my understanding was, is that there was some misunderstanding. Both folks left it with different understandings of what exactly. Yes, happened. yes. So you can get an. Um, uh, unfortunately, we do not have books that clarify this. Mm -hmm. We just have books that speculate. So I'm trying to avoid not putting out information Absolutely. that is basically speculative. So I'm saying things that are already well written well documented in our history books you know so so because this is a very sensitive uh, topic and you trust me you don't want misinformation to 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 move to to move and and you know uh, switch emotions as well Absolutely. uh so uh well the war started the first shot i think the first uh, gunshots to kickstart the war was in gam i'm not i'm not thinking this is a fact was in gamki uh, it's a town just in northern in the northern part of present-day Cross River. So it borders with Benway State. So you could say it's kind of like a, what's the word? It's kind of like, it kind of like exemplifies Nigeria because 
Gamki is like literally just the midpoint between Northern Cross River, which is in southern Nigeria, and Southern Benue State, present-day Benue State, which is in northern Nigeria. So it's at the midpoint. It's not, I mean, it's not the mid geographically, it's not at the midpoint, but just by the, the edge of eastern Nigeria, you have a part that is still part of northern Nigeria to date, bordering with a part that is part of southern Nigeria to date. So it, it exemplifies Nigeria and the world then, which was basically between the north and the south, with the exception of the west, who uh, decided to, to join uh, northern Nigeria. Uh, in, in, in the war, of course. And um, as I said earlier on, this was the uh, first televised major war on could TV. You explain why, could you explain why Western Nigeria may have made that choice? Um, wow, this is, this, that's a difficult, <laughs> difficult <Sorry>. question <laughs> because I, this is entering sensitive part and I, yeah. I um, really do not want to, uh, to do that. But I think, I think the main decision was that um, yeah, again, yeah, again, a speculation. If I wasn't on the podcast call and it was just a personal call with you, Akin, I'll tell you what, what I felt it was. But that's right. uh, I really, I really don't want to do that. You know? Yeah, I really don't. Yeah. yeah, I really don't want to do that. But I, I, I think the, I, I don't think, I don't think the the Western region bought into the idea of 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 uh, of self determination at that time. I don't think you deport into it. And but let's not forget, as I said, what's happening in Nigeria right now is quite. Yes, 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 yes. So the federating units then were very, very strong, were very powerful. They could decide to secede. And at that point in time, the Western region did not feel it wise or did not see it wise to move with Biafra and secede or to, to secede on, okay. by themselves on, on their own. So they decided to go with Nigeria and. That's where we are. But if we have a conversation just after outside the podcast, of course, I can let you know some of the um, predispositions that leaders of the Western region had about leaders of the Eastern region and vice versa. It's literally the same thing. It's basically the same Nigerian problem. Ethnocentric predispositions, be clouding judgment, our sense of judgment, and causing us to have a war that kills almost 3 million of us and set the country back by decades. So it's ethnocentric predispositions playing a very big part of why we went to that war when we could have just settled it by just recalibrating our state formations yeah. as, a, 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 as an entity, as an independent en- en- entity, yeah. for instance. So that, that's about it. And uh, yeah. the war started in Yankee and moved fast a lot. The, um, for those who also do not know, we had, into, uh, we had uh, a, a block of countries that were supporting either Nigeria or Biafra. Uh-huh. France, Tanzania, and a few other countries decided to pitch their tents with Nigeria, with, with Biafra, sorry, with Biafra, please get that clear. The, the French and Tanzania in particular uh, uh, supported Biafra. Um, um, the British, uh, the United Kingdom, because the British folks, of course, we're supporting Nigeria, of course. Uh, it's the entity uh, they created. Yes, I, I, I do not think the United States of America had a particular support, but from some CIA records, I think the, 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 the thinking from White House was to, to stick with the status quo, which is Nigeria, but they weren't really out there clear. Where we saw American involvement largely in the world was in humanitarian support. 
that's where we saw uh, American uh, involvement in the war. Uh, there are some CIA declassified files, of course, that uh, explain America's involvement in the war. But it's you, as you do know, with American uh, politics, is you don't really get the clear picture from those yeah. files. You just you just know that okay, this is what the, the head of state then uh, said, and the rest. Yeah, but largely America's involvement in the war was humanitarian through humanitarian causes. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, France, France, to an understanding, this is from the scholarly uh, circles in Nigeria, the mm -hmm. French were interested in supporting Biafra because they knew at that point in time that Nigeria, as the only two or three Anglophone countries in West Africa, were an impediment to French influence in West Africa. And Nigeria was, at that time, Nigeria was such a large country. And it still is. I mean, it's the largest economy in Africa and the largest economy in, in West Africa. It's, it has. It still has reasonable political clout. So um, you add this to that, you can understand why Nigerian scholars on the Biafra War believe that the French or believe that the French supported uh, Biafra's decision because of that. You know, to weaken, to further weaken Nigeria's influence in the West African subregion. But there's about that. I don't want to go into speculations. I just want to tell you that this is what the, the scholars thought at this uh, at that point. Uh, so yeah, basically, it was the the Western world uh, was divided between uh, the UK and France uh, as regards the world. France supporting Biafra, and uh, the Englishmen uh, and women supported uh, uh, Nigeria and well, of course. And uh, it was such a terrible war. Yeah. In the sense that the um, the rules of engagement were flouted every single day. For instance, the Nigerian army stopped the inflow of food from the southern parts just after they had taken control of the ports in Potaka and Calabar. They stopped. Uh, there was a blockade on food movement. Um, even when humanitarians uh, would fly in food and relief supplies, Nigeria would intentionally take them, stop them from getting to southeastern Nigeria and take them to other parts. So mm -hmm. basically what we had was uh, the Nigerian army uh, causing an artificial farming. Yeah. There was um, also a scarcity in, of salt. And so uh, diaspora Nigerians have had stories from their parents and their uncles of how scarce it, it was to get salt to cook. Uh, there are many stories, of course, of that. So, yeah, the core of the deaths, obviously, lots of the deaths happened because of, 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 of the infighting, gunshot wounds, and the rest. But the core of the deaths was actually from the farming. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The artificial farming that was caused by the Nigerian army caused a lot of people to die. Uh, people died in hunger at um, southern parts, and, and it, was, it was such a, a terrible, 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 terrible page in Nigeria's history. And we lost up to three million people. Um, we're still, we're still, we're still, we haven't recovered from that yet. Uh, it forms the basis of our ethnocentric predispositions for people other than, uh, than you know, uh, us. And when I say this, I mean, for instance, how the, the, the houses see the Igbos, how the Igbos see the Yorubas, how the Yorubas see the Igbos. You know, typical Nigerian. Uh, Nigerian uh, 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 suspicions for one another. 
regardless. We don't have a defined national identity, that's, that's for sure. Um, I wrote a thesis uh, in 2016 called State Indigeneity and Nigeria's National Identity. And I think one of my research findings from that thesis was that the lack of a unified national identity impedes the country in so many ways. And I can say that, that uh, a causal factor for our lack of a national identity is still because of the aftermath of that war. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of we haven't structured ourselves such a way uh, but yes yeah, I think this is the most important thing I, I, I would say about this work was that we did not have a clear reconciliatory type of uh, oh my, yeah. sort of uh, we, 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 we did have the uh, we did have uh, government policies centered around forceful unification. Yeah. So uh, I think it was the three hours uh, we unified, we construct and uh, rehabilitate. I think that was, those were three hours from Yakubu's uh, government just after the war. Mm. Uh, uh, no victor, no vanquished, basically. Well, that, that is very dishonest in the sense that if you say that there's no victor of war, yeah. obviously no one would want the war. I mean, if you're looking right. at it from a, from a national perspective, no one, nobody won the war, to be honest. Yeah, Nigeria, uh, right, a lot of them. Yeah, we, we lost, on everybody lost from, from all fronts. Uh, but the no victor, no vanquished um, uh, mantra was dishonest in, this fa in the fact that we did not reconcile with a people who were part of us, who were still part of the Union just after the war. We did not reconcile with them. We did not have a truth. Uh, the proper, you know, the, the South Africans had something very beautiful, the truth and reconciliation uh, of the team, uh, uh, com commission. Uh, yeah, Rwanda had something similar. So it's sort of like, you, you healed the wounds by not only saying sorry, but by actually ensuring that there are consequences to actions that you take. For instance, the, the Asagro massacre, uh, to date, we still deify the people, the perpetrators of the Asagro massacre. Yeah. We, 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 they are our heroes to date. Yeah. They, they our, are our airport that, uh, is named, we named our airport, our airport is named after the main perpetrator, you yeah. know. Uh, that's, that's, that's the shambles of the situation, for instance. How do you expect a section of a country to feel comfortable being part of a union, contributing to the, the growth of the union, when literally our heroes, the people that lead us, um, literally killed us, wiped us out, you know? Generations were, were, were wiped. Uh, another, thing, another thing to also point out, let's, not look, let's look at it from an economic perspective, for instance where um, people of the, um, the Eastern region literally lost everything they had in their bank accounts, for instance. Yeah. They were, you, you, you know, it was, you kind of understand where livelihoods were destroyed. Yeah. Generational wealth. Without generational, generational wealth created over nearly 200 years lost at the blink of, uh, of a decision from the government. How do you expect a people to forcefully join that union back again yeah. and love it? 
Yeah, that's true. It, it, it doesn't make sense. So when I uh, and, uh, and when I look at the pronunciations or pronouncements from government saying uh, uh, Nigeria's unity is non-negotiable, I laugh because it's dishonest. It doesn't, uh, from a political science perspective, it, 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 it defies any reason, it defies logic. You have to be able to make uh, inroads. You have to be able to appease. Uh, people, if you really want them to be part of the union, you have to show them that uh, you feel remorse for it. You have to make economic reparations for that. There were no economic reparations for that. People literally just lost and had to build up from the scratch. Imagine having thousands of pounds in your accounts, all for your, your future kids, lost at the blink, and you had to start from the beginning again. Imagine having to start without a lot of able, able-bodied human beings in your, uh, I mean, family members who were able-bodied and we all know the social structure of, 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 of Nigerian Igbos at that time and to date, you know, most of their businesses are family businesses uh, and, and lots and lots of people get involved in it. The wealth creation process, there are lots of people involved in it and then just after the war, 90% of them are gone, you have to start alone, you know, you look at all these things, you have to unpack them, you know. So for listeners, for people who are listening to this podcast, uh, uh, who are not Nigerians, um, it's like, and I'm, I'm not trying to compare whatsoever with, uh, with another tragedy, uh, but it's, think of it as a Holocaust, uh-huh. but within, uh, within, and uh, with, with, Within a um, uh, or an Holocaust happening on African soil, think of it like that. Oh. Think of it like that, but obviously not just just in, in the contextual part. Um, people, some people say the war was genocide, and uh, the the rules of engagement of the war. If you look at it, the the the, the artificial shortage in food, the blockade yeah. of aid and food makes, makes that make sense. Uh, uh, the technicalities behind the, the, the definition of, of the word itself or the, etym- the etymology behind the word genocide itself, you would say yes, probably, probably yes. Uh, as I said, it's a very sensitive topic, so you have to be very careful with the words that you use. But when you look at the pogrom, uh, uh, political scientists tell you when, 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 when a pogrom happens, it's basically the beginning stage of a genocide. So a pogrom is when you have targeted killings at a people. It could be based on their ethnicity, it could be based on their nationality, it could be based on their affiliations to religion or faith or a movement or an ideology. Uh, in this, in this uh, instance, it was based on the ethnicity. So basically people in the north targeted the Igbos, uh, and within a few days, in fact, within five days, we had 30,000 Igbos killed. We had one million Igbos and other uh, Nigerians of southern extraction move from the north to the south with immediate speed. So, yes, I could say, I could technically say that if you ask me if the Biafra war was a genocide, I could technically tell you that, yes. Uh, another social, uh, social scientist would say probably, uh, would say that that is a far reach, that's far fetched, that we have to be measured with our pronunciations. And I may also nod in agreement a bit, you know. Uh, 
But then again, we are having this sort of conversation because we haven't developed proper literature, proper, uh, uh, well, a well-structured base, a foundation, a foundation to have, to have a discourse like this. And this podcast, as with many other conversations that we're having with young Nigerians in their 20s and 30s, is important. It is needed. Uh, I can, and trust me, I, don't, I do not say this from a position of authority. I have a lot of reading to do just as I implore listeners to do lots of reading. Well, un- unfortunately, unfortunately, we still, we still have, uh, we're still suffering from a dearth of valuable, uh-huh. info- yeah, informative literature. Oh. Still, in fact, the, the best literature you can get now is from a non uh, and it's not even technically about the war, it's about the history of, of military cool uh, d'etat. Uh-huh. It's uh-huh. from a what, what's Mac- it Max. Max Siolun, uh, uh, I, I think there's one on, on the, on, on, uh, let me just, let me yeah. just be. It's okay, be we'll, put it, we'll put it in I forgot it. But, yeah, but Max, Max Siolun is a Frenchman who was born mm-hmm. in Nigeria and brought up in Nigeria and uh, has written quite a lot of, I'm, I'm searching for it. I knew I, I, I did, uh, um, did read it, but I don't know the exact words behind the title so let me just check check it there yeah, yeah. We, we, uh, we have to actually wrap up in, in yeah yeah i think i think uh we're we're almost done yeah i'm coming in. let me let me let me just confirm the name so people could could go read mm-hmm. but this this basically exemplifies the problem the dilemma that nigeria and nigerians have they want to know about the world they want to have exact Uh, they want to understand they want to deconstruct but there's no it's called soldiers of fortune and literally soldiers of fortune doesn't talk um about the war itself but it talks about big parts of the war uh and to an extent it's the one of the best literature we have concerning the war we do have uh chino achebe's there was a uh country which yeah. is also very, very rich. Uh, yeah. Some of his critics say that it is uh, very biased. But yeah. just as the books from, from General Bassanger and many other uh, army officers that were involved in the war, yeah. a lot of them are biased. So yeah. it's all yeah. about having measured, uh, measured understanding, uh-huh. understanding when you read these this books, for instance. Yeah. But I implore Nigerians to have a read, to read, uh, uh, look into it, to research, do their own personal research, uh-huh. to listen to or to, to oral history as well. Uh, yeah. A big part of Nigeria's history is actually from oral, oh. um, oral yeah. history. And we're, and we're here with Pote Refka building that. Um, unfortunately, yeah, yeah. Though, we have to run off the call. My sister actually has another call scheduled at this time. Um, no problem so at all. stopping no them from doing that thing. Thank you so no much. Problem at all. I hope I, I hope I was able to uh, be fair, uh, not uh, use uh, hearsay to you know basically to, to, to speak on this topic. But people can understand the repercussions of the world and that we haven't recovered yet. Yep. Uh, we Glad you guys enjoyed that episode. At least I'm assuming you did. Um, check us out, of course, on all our social medias, Pod Save Africa on Instagram. SaveAfricaPod.com on the website, internet. That is, <laughs> that's our website. And we look forward to bringing you guys some more exciting content over the next couple of weeks. Thank you so very much and have a wonderful rest of your day and week.
Don't forget to stay safe. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Bye.